Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz. Before we go into literally anything today, I would like you to go and listen to yesterday's International Women's Day special, which Abby Mickey put together. Go do it. It's excellent. Posted on Monday just before this episode. If you missed it, don't miss it. Well... We've got quite a bit to talk about, and we have most of the regular crew with us here today. Dan Cash, how are you? Doing good. Yeah, nice weekend of racing, so that was great. And we got a week of two World Tour races here, so that's also great. Abby? Yes? <laughs> Did you have a fun weekend? Uh, it was a pretty busy weekend between between the, the Strada Bianchi, and then I was on D&D yesterday, which included not one. Not two, but three bike races. Just a lot to keep up with. That's a, that's a heavy, a heavy daily news digest day for you yesterday. Shoddy Dave, did you, did I just see some new spectacles over there? Uh, these oh, yeah. these are um, I, I'm getting bad headaches, so I've got them blue light ones now for the computer screen. Oh, yeah, that's like the new thing. Clearly working too hard. <laughs> Looking at the screen too long. <laughs> That, that is an unfortunate side effect of the modern workplace, right? I mean, Shadi, if you could edit movies on a book, I would say go for it. But you probably struggle with that. Well, analog with a pencil, maybe not. Maybe I should start doing them, them rotund things where you just have slits in the slide side of it and it spins around the old-fashioned ones. <laughs> the actual moving exactly. pictures? Yeah, we could do one of those. So that'll show up on YouTube next week. Shoddy trying to make a moving pictures version of what are those things called? Anyway, tangent. James, how are you today? Pretty good. Pretty good. I had a pretty good weekend. Crushed rocks with my kiddo on Saturday. Like literally, oh, yeah. literally crushed rocks with other rocks on Saturday with no eye protection, I should add. Uh, and then we went skiing on Sunday. So could have been worse. Crushing rocks is one of my favorite hobbies as a kid, for sure. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today. We are going to talk about Strada Bianchi, which is, well, which happened on Saturday. And we had two fantastic Strada races on the white roads of Tuscany. And of course, Perinese kicked off. We've got Tirreno coming up and a little bit of Tare Pogacar news. So we'll get to that later in the show. Plus, today's Nerd Nugget, another company potentially making an attempt at a shoe-based power meter we'll talk about that later in the show but as is traditional now shoddy dave what are we learning about continental this week well this week i'm not going to teach anybody anything because last week i told you all about the tires the pro use but don't take my word for it instead we've got a, a bit of an audio uh, chit chat with a mechanic from the Francis Dujour team, or Group Armour Francis Dujour. Anyway, they use the tyres, so here we go. Hello, my name is Anthony Bouillot, uh, and we are happy to ride the Continental in the Group Armour FDG uh, Pro Cycling team. For this Saturday, we will use in Strade Bianche uh, a different setup. The first one will be the tubeless tyre uh, GP5000, uh, in uh, 28 millimeters, and also uh, the tubular um, setup with competition uh, R- RBX 28 uh, millimeters. And uh, yeah, for the tubeless, we will use it with uh, with some uh, sealant inside, 
and for the pressure about this uh, two setup we are between five and six uh, bars um, for, the, for, for this different setup my cat chose this moment to go into its litter box oh <laughs> that i was what wondering that what sounded? that sound was that's a, that's a very loud litter are, kaylee are you actually recording this podcast from the inside of the litter box that's what it sounds like <laughs> he's he's aggressively kicking around in his litter box at the moment does that mean cat i'm podcasting th- does that mean your bedroom floor is always covered in cat litter uh, it's got walls, so mm. but yes, kind of. Is it one of those like no? It, is it one of like the bucket style cat litter boxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like it's in the closet area. But all right, he's done. <laughs> <laughs> I always find it interesting that at Strata they don't really they don't really change tires that much, and obviously the the expected rain did not show up over the weekend, and so they pretty much run standard tires. Most of the time, they run 25s, maybe 28s if they're feeling spicy. But yeah, Conti competition, 25 or 28, standard issue. They're good stuff. It'll be interesting to see if we can get another audio clip from the same mechanic at a different race and see if they do switch it up for something like Flanders or or Paris-Roubaix where the roads are a lot different than Strada. Yeah, I think we'll have to ask ahead of Roubaix because that's the one where we're obviously going to see the biggest changes uh, to tire selection. Thanks, as always, to Continental for sponsoring this week's episode. Cat! I I shouldn't yell at him. He'll, like, poop outside of it. Like, I want him to poop in it. (laughs) Right, right. Like, I mean, I, I used to have a couple of cats. And I do remember that, like the litter box is supposed to be like their 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 blissful place. Like it's supposed to be all it's happy. Their, it's this happy place. Because yeah. the last thing you want is for that cat to be doing stuff outside of that litter box. Yep, we're gonna give them. We're gonna give them a minute. <laughs> it's really loud. Do you, do you have so the mic loud? in the litter box? He's not even doing anything in there. He's just leaned in halfway in, and is just like moving stuff around. <laughs> Does he have a normal time for this? Who doesn't have a normal time for this? Meg says give him his prize. <laughs> We just spent like 10 minutes wait we just waited <laughs> spent 10 minutes waiting to record this episode so Kaylee's cat could take a shit. <laughs> we all need our time in the morning, you know? Some, it's just unfortunate that some of that us his need more than others. O- overlapped with with our recording time. <laughs> And it's also unfortunate that his litter box is not that far from where I record this this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Once again, a bit of an unintentional how the sausage is made moment. (laughs) (laughs) Dane Cash, our chief Dane correspondent. Uh, I had multiple people tweet me about that joke from last week's episode, with, mostly with like thumbs down emojis Ooh. and you know one, one out of ten and things like that. I give so it. I, I do I'd give it like a five out of ten at least. That's still a failing. That's a failing. Fair enough. That's okay. a fifty percent. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's still an F. Anyway, Dane, let's talk Strada Bianchi. What what went down over the weekend? Let's kick off with 
Let's kick off with the Benz race. We'll do it in reverse order of the way that they went down uh, over the weekend. Yeah, uh, both races were great. Uh, men's race, uh, we kind of went into the weekend talking about three riders. We went into talking about Matthew Vanderpool, Wad Van Aert, and Julian Alaphilippe. And they all featured pretty heavily. Uh, and uh, the race really came down to this select group of... Uh, it was like, by, by the time things were really you know kicking off, it was like seven riders. Uh, there had been a big but selection. They, uh, but yeah, but they split at like 50K to go. That was the impressive thing to me. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. and... and they split, and then there was a, there was sort of a regrouping. Uh, it was very active at around 50k to go or 45k to go, um, in which you know the break is caught, and then this big group goes up with uh, Greg Van Avermaet in it, and then Watt Van Aert kind of decided, no, I I don't want that to be that way, and so he hit the front really hard and helped bring things back together, and then almost immediately, this new very decisive select group formed, in which you had Van Aert and Julian Alaphilippe, and Matthew Vanderpool and Edgar Bernal as well. Tadej Pogacar was in the group. Uh, it was an impressive Tom group. Uh, and they rode kind of well together for a little while. But then once the gravel sectors, the, the last few gravel sectors, uh, it was a very aggressive race at the front. And Matthew Vanderpool put in a couple of pretty impressive attacks uh, that didn't really completely, uh, you know, he didn't launch clear of the group, but he, he really helped put some pressure on riders, including the defending champion, Wat Van Aert, and also uh, Tadej Pogacar. Until, with around 12k to go, on the final gravel sector of the race, uh, Vanderpool and Egon Bernal and Julian Alaphilippe got clear. Uh, Bernal kind of chased on uh, to catch Alaphilippe and, and Vanderpool, but it was pretty impressive to see none other than Egon Bernal with two of the best one-day races in the world. Uh, Bernal, obviously, as a Tour de France winner, not somebody you tend to expected the one-day races. And this was his debut Strada Bianca, by the way. So that was pretty cool to see the, well, let's see, Matthew Vanderpool, the, the reigning cyclocross world champion, uh, getting away with the reigning world champion uh, and a former Tour de France winner uh, out of a group that also included the reigning Tour de France champion and the defending Strada Bianca champion. Uh, not bad. Not a bad group uh, all around at the front of that race. Uh, also, it's Michael Google was all there. All the big names. All the big names want to race Strada now. Yeah. All of them. Every single one. It's great. And they I tend to it. do pretty well. Um, also, Tom Pitcock was up in that group. So really nice job from him in this debut f- uh, performance from him and, and also Michael Google. So good for Michael Google as well. Hey, Google. And, yes. Can, can, can we talk about Michael Google real quick? So, like, he's literally surrounded by, you know, probably six of the highest profile 12 bike riders like on earth and we got michael gogol who no offense to michael gogol is does not qualify in part of that 12 highest profile bike riders on earth what a ride from him absolutely incredible ride from him and further a continuation of kubeka asos suddenly being at the front of every single bike race thus far this year they they so let, let's let's keep in mind here that kubeka asos they lost a huge number of riders at the end of last year because they almost folded they then picked up a ton of riders who were either out of contract or struggling to find contracts. They, they basically, they got like, not the scraps, I don't want to put it that way, but they got a bunch of riders who had not already been picked up. They clearly have some kind, so, something is motivating them at the moment. Something is happening, clicking in that team, because they have been more aggressive and more visible this spring than any recent year. And in theory, they should be 
a, a less strong team than they've ever been for a whole number of reasons. So I'm just super, super, super impressed by one, Kubeka Asos, and two, Michael Gogol being up there with the be- the literally the best riders in the world, which I think he would, you know, he would admit that he is not probably ever going to be a Tour de France contender. Super impressed with him and, and proof that, well, bike racing still has some, some tricks up its sleeve, I think. I've, I've been a mad fan of Google for a long time. Like I remember first meeting him back at a TDU in 20, I want to say 2016, where he actually won the last stage of the Tour Down Under, if uh, anybody remembers that. It was uh, a stage held around a car park after the official race. Which we called the it wasn't a car park challenge. It was basically I went and hired a recumbent uh, tandem thing, got a load of pros together and got them to race around a car park after they'd done the the the, the final official race. And he him in his in his first year at his first January of a World Tour season took the trophy home. So yeah, I've been keep waiting for him to do another good ride since then, so I was well happy to see that. But no, he's been knocking on, not knocking on the door, but I think he's shown promise a lot. Like he, he turned up at the Classics in his first year and did like Flanders Andrew Bate in his very first year with Tinkoff. And then kind of didn't so much go off the boil, but didn't show the promise that he, he, he did show early on when he was with the sort of Tyrol team as a, uh, before he was a stagiaire at Tinkoff when he moved to Trek. Uh, but yeah, like last last year at the Tour de France, he got away. Ooh, one of the Alpine stages, I want to say, one of the late Alpine stages, and showed that he was definitely had a bit between his teeth and wanted to do something not just for himself, but for what was then a team that didn't look like it was going to get a sponsor. Yeah, and the reality is, you know, there's no faking it at Strada Bianchi, right? There, there is, there is no faking form there and so you know he deserved to be up with that group and it was just super super impressive it was such a such a group of hitters up there and then michael gogol who sort of one of these things is not like the others <laughs> very much that kind of vibe out of that front group when when uh the commentator of the race was listing off all of the achievements of all of the riders in the group and then at the very end he just said and michael gogol i laughed out loud <laughs> Did did you not mention the the winning the tour down under? <laughs> the tour down under car park hill climb. <laughs> he was also top ten last year at Strata, so he clearly knows something about Strata because you can, you don't top ten twice in a row without you know having some Strata ability. For sure, yeah. Anyway, moving on from Quebec Asos and, and Michael Gogol, I was just I wanted to throw them some kudos yes. because yeah, they've just been everywhere. Yeah, so. 12K to go, Vanderpool, Alaphilippe get away, and Bernal catches back on. And then we have a group of reigning world cross champ, reigning world road champ, and uh, 2019 Tour de France champion contending for the win. And there was some action in the finale as Vanderpool put in another just crazy little dig. And it was, I mean, you could see how strong he was. Uh, Didn't quite drop him, though. So we rolled into the final K all together at the front with, with all three riders. Uh, they hit the, the climb into Siena, which is an, a really steep climb, by the way. Uh, all together, Alaphilippe's leading with 600 meters to go, and then Vanderpool hits the front. And for like five seconds, it was like, all right, Vanderpool's in the front. What's going to happen? And then he just put in this, it was just a devastating attack that it took no time at all for Alaphilippe to be 
several bike lengths behind. And it was it was like all it was as if all along Vanderpool was going to win at that point. There was there was just no chance. Uh, it wasn't even close. And he just flew up that climb uh, at at a speed that was unbelievable. I mean, he he was he was really uh, it was like he was fresh, and yet he had just raced Strada Bianca, uh, and he exploded into the Piazza del Campo alone, and with an emphatic celebration, took the win. Alaphilippe in second, and Bernal, yeah, I mean, third, uh, he probably would have liked to have won, but still pretty impressive to finish third in your debut, uh, Strada Bianca, as Egon Bernal. And he was never, ever going to win any sort of sprint with those two. That is true. Uh, so so third is really all he could kind of hope for. I, I think, sort of from Alaphilippe's perspective, it, it's pretty unusual that we see Alaphilippe dropped on a steep, yes. sort of punchy sprint kicker kind of thing. Yeah, Vanderpool's acceleration was just such that I think anybody who's raced has kind of experienced this where someone attacks you and you just, you know, immediately and you can kind of see it in Alaphilippe. You're like, nope, yep. Yep. <laughs> not happening, not, not following that one. Not, not, nope, I can try. It's not going to work. Yeah, it was <laughs> pretty cool to see watch. That. You could see that in Alaphilippe's eyes immediately, which is something pretty rare. Uh, we very rarely see that. And of course, because this is such a decisive climb, I mean, there's there's cameras all over the climb. So you can see all the, you can watch it all different angles if you go looking to see you know, the attack. It was, it's great. I, I definitely would recommend watching uh, Vanderpool just leaving everybody in the dust. It's pretty cool. I have a small a small um, vacation tips, tangent, holiday tips. So uh, my wife and I stayed at a place called La Torre Alatolfe, uh, which is at the very top of the final gravel sector at Strada Bianchi, which when I booked it, I did actually didn't realize until I started riding around. I was like, wait a second, this is Latolfe. This is like the that super, super steep one that, that Vanderpool sort of first pulled clear uh, along with Alaphilippe and then Bernal kind of chasing. So today's vacation tip, check that place out, La Torre Alatolfe. It was a superb, superb vacation spot. And if you want to go ride a bunch of the Strada Bianchi route, obviously you're on it. So... As a total aside, I have absolutely no relationship whatsoever with this place, but we enjoyed staying there, and it's on the, the course. So, yeah, your vacation tip of the week. I, I have a friend who, in a conversation just the other day, had, had a little a very applicable snippet that I'd like to add in here. He was saying how we should offer up little, like, you know, vacation, travel tips, that sort of thing, but call it, instead of cycling tips, we have to call it cycling trips. Ooh, that's good. Spin-off, spin-off business here. I smell one. Yeah. So today's cycling trip tip. <laughs> La Torre Alatolfe. It's at right at the top of that hill. It's got this like Roman tower from the thirteen hundreds. It has a pool. The folks that run it are super, super nice. They make their own olive oil, which we bought and brought home. Do it. Do it up. Whenever we can travel again. Get yourself over there. Surely we should. Surely we should talk about Tom Peacock and Bernal because, like, it's just yeah. again, it's a, it's another sign. Like, it's another sign of seeing not Sky, sorry, Ineos ride like they've never had before. Seeing them two guys not just turn up to a race and take it seriously and get in the mix, but really light the race up. It's just yeah, we've never seen this from Ineos before. Not that I can remember, at least anyway. I mean, it, you don't have to think back that far to, to remember, uh, you know, any tour contender in general was not really doing a whole lot of racing except for the Tour de France, right? Maybe they were they were in 
Paris-Nice early on. They did one more stage race. But this sort of switch to more Grand Tour contenders doing more one days uh, is really only the last year or two, kind of led by riders like Bernal, like like Pogacar, who you know made a, a solid run at, at Lombardy and Worlds, and etc. Uh, it's great to see, and it's great to see that the what Dave Brailsford said on this very podcast, which is I think the first time he really talked about it. Uh, last fall that that he wanted to build a team that he could root for that 19 year old Dave Brailsford could root for we're, we're seeing that now we're seeing Ineos ride well aggressively and and lo and behold they're having you know more success really than at least more visibility than they would normally have in a lot of these one days and I think that you know when you when you do have a team with that much firepower they have the potential to really sort of take some of these one day races by storm and I'm I'm pretty intrigued to see what they do throughout the rest of the year it's certainly been a, a more exciting Ineos this season than we've seen previously and a bunch of their riders including Bernal and Pidcock who looks like he just loves get stuck into these things uh they're really helping that I think for Pidcock in particular it's really fascinating to see and I guess it's not just Pidcock because uh, we I think we've seen similar with Remco Evenepoel they are riders who we've talked about them. The cycling media has talked about them quite extensively for the last few years. They've, they've been sort of known commodities after having really strong junior careers that the whole cycling world was excited about. Uh, and there have been a lot of riders like that who haven't panned out or their first few years that just have not really made it at the world tour level. Um, it's really early to say whether that, whether, you know, Pidcock is going to be as great as the hype, but, he certainly looked really strong so far, and I think there have been a number of riders like him who have kind of been just fine when they got to the World Tour level in the past few years after being really hyped as juniors, and that's kind of cool to see. It's it's nice that not everybody doesn't work out because it really often seems like so many of those riders who win things like the Baby Giro, uh, you know, they win Tour de Lavenir stages. We talk about them extensively. They get to the World Tour level, and they just aren't great. Uh, Seems like Pitcock is is not going to be one of those guys. He certainly seems like he's going to do uh, a lot at the World Tour level, and and that's yeah, it's good for him. It's good to see uh, somebody living up to that kind of thing. Although very early, it's basically just been one one really big race so far. And turns out, if you want to be a good bike racer, you better start racing cross as a junior. Yeah, the number of riders, the number of big riders who have been, and it's not just I mean, it's not just Vanderpool and Van Aert. I think there's a lot of riders who people don't they don't really remember that back in the you know Julian Alaphilippe was a was a star as a junior cross racer. Uh, Pogaccio race cross. Fabio Aru. Yeah, there we go. Peter Sagan race cross. I mean, there's there's a lot of riders. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. So, get racing cross now if you're a, if you're a teenager, I guess. If you want to be a good at the Tour de France or, or in the classics. Yeah, if you want to win the Tour someday, make sure you're racing cross if you're a junior. That's the top tip of the day. Two tips already knocking them out today. <laughs> that's what you know. That's what we're called, right? So. <laughs> All right, moving on from the men's race, moving on from the men's race, uh, women's race, which unfortunately for uh, our U.S. audience wrapped up at about six o'clock in the morning, I think, um, at least Colorado time here. So a little bit later if you're on the East Coast, but difficult to catch the women's race. And then we only got about a half hour of broadcast. Nonetheless, the racing was spectacular. Abby, I think you wrote up the, the race report for that. Talk us through it. 
Yeah, it was a really incredible race. Um, unfortunately, we did only get to see the last 20K, but the 20K that we saw was spectacular racing. I actually watched it again today while I rode the trainer because it was just that good of a <laughs> that good of a race. Um, but once again, it, it's a little bit of the same story as Omelette Pet Newsblad. SD Works had the numbers. They had the the race in control basically the whole time. Uh, Chantal Vandenbroek Black was in, was in the break when the coverage started, which is an interesting note based on how the race ended. A lot of people tried to go. There was a, it was a group of basically all of the favorites, Ashley Momopasio, Mariana Voss, Chantal Vandenbroek Black, although probably not a favorite before the race, but Van Vluten, Vandebregen, Cash and Iwadoma, uh, Cecile Utrip Ludwig, basically all the, all the riders you would expect were in this group and SD works was being pretty aggressive. Um, actually, interestingly, Chantal Vandenbroek Black and Elisa Longo Brigini went off the front with like 16 K to go and then were brought back. And then after that, uh, Annemiek Van Vluten and Mariana Voss went off the front and this is kind of the defining moment of the race, I think, because when ever in the last two years but if you have heard that van uh that van vluten and voss went off the front and that wasn't the race over because they were brought back and with 6k to go Chantel vanderbrook black attacked uh lisa longaborghini then bridged to her quickly it was, she didn't really follow the attack but kind of took a second to to get up there and once the two of them were off the front Elisa just rode um Chantal just sat on her the whole time. Once they got onto the the steep climb up to the finish, uh, Vanderbrook Black went and Lisa Longo Borghini really was powerless to follow. Um, it was a really interesting situation because we I was texting with Amy Jones and and Lauren Rowney, who I do freewheeling with, and both of all of us were saying the race is over, like this is Aliza's. Aliza's going to win. And then they hit that 500 meter to go climb and Chantel just rode away. And it was really amazing. But you saw the hesitation in, in Aliza Longaborghini. She'd clearly ridden herself into the ground by then. Yeah, a perfect textbook example of how kind of a super domestique can take advantage of, of team dynamics, right? To, to get a, a large victory. Uh, yeah, I think back to kind of like some of the quick step Roubaix's, for example, you know, a Terpstra taking advantage of the fact that Boonin was around to, to win, to win Pair Roubaix. Exact same thing, right? Where you've got strength in numbers and you can kind of just follow moves. And that's all that Chantal Vanderbrook was doing and followed that, followed the right move basically, and wasn't forced to work because she had teammates behind. She had absolutely no reason to pull. You know, she wasn't. She would have been in trouble, in fact, if she had taken a bunch of pulls and then Longo Brigini had dropped her in the in the finale, right? So she could just sit there, and yeah, just a perfect tactical masterclass, I think, is what you described it as, Abby, on this on the website. Uh, yeah, not not almost nothing you could have done more perfectly <laughs> as Chantal Vanderbrook Black to get to that finish line first. Uh, and, and actually as the whole team, really, because like I said, it was it's sort of a, it's a function of team strength and a function of uh, the ability to sort of lean on the fact that you've got riders elsewhere to work less. I feel like Vanderbrook Black's career has been, there's been a really high ratio of results to fanfare. And 
I think she's just she keeps winning races over and over again, and people are like, oh wait, Chantal Vandenberg Black, Vandenberg Black is really good. And I referred to her as a Prius because she's like the silent killer. That's like a really she... good. Yes, that is. <laughs> and yet, it's she's How a world a champion. Prius a right? silent killer. Silent, yes. Because they're silent. If you're riding a bike and a Prius comes up behind you and hits you, you have no idea it's mm. coming. Okay, I see. Maybe the anyway. Nissan Leaf. It sounds like a lot less terrifying let's if make you're her a, on a bike. Let's make her a Tesla. Let's make her a that's, Tesla. Yeah. How about okay, that? Okay, she's like a Tesla that's, then. That's probably she's, better, yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. She's, she's won a world championship, right? I mean, she's won Flanders. She's won Amstel. Twice. She's won Gent Well again. Yeah. Like, she's won a lot of races. And I think it's, she's in a perfect position because she's, she's, she's been a teammate of Anna van der Breggen for so long now that van der Breggen tends to be the one that we talk about in the previews and in, a, you know, in the pre-race podcasts for good reason because she's Anna van der Breggen. Uh, but Vandenbroek Black is extremely talented and a very versatile rider who can really take advantage of the, the position that she's in uh, and has so many times over that, yeah, at, at this point, I feel like she deserves a lot of credit for, for being able to really leverage her position, whether, whether it's both Dolmans or, of course, with the Dutch national team, which is also pretty good uh, in, in any, any event they race. So, yeah, just hats off to, to Chantal Vandenbroek Black for being so damn good and being and, and yet sort of kind of flying under the radar somehow. Tactical perfection. Uh, what, any other storylines we need to hit on? Yeah. Um, yeah. The A couple of the takeaways from this race, I think, were that um, Armin Van Vluten, she came into this race. We we weren't really sure how her form was after getting caught out in Omloop. We talked about it on free, Freewheeling, how... Um, the fact that she was caught out and wasn't able to just bridge solo to the front group was a sign that either she actually does rely on having strong teammates more than we anticipated, um, or that she is not on as great a form as she has been in previous years. And I think this kind of prove that her form is maybe not what it what it was last year or the year before um not to say that she won't get there at some point this season but it is really interesting because she's she's always come into the race season flying and i to see her and voss go off the front and then get brought back was just absolutely shocking it did have something to do with sd works having four in the lead group the most um the most a team had up there Demi Vollering continues to be a rider to watch for the future, for sure. The another thing that it was a li- was very subtle, but I thought I found really awesome, given that I I chatted with Marta Cavalli about this race, was that Marta Cavalli was really aggressive the whole time we got to watch the race, and she tried. She was the only rider that tried to bridge uh, to the leaders when they were off the front. Actually, one other thing. What was really, really interesting um, with Chantel sitting on Elisa Longa Borghini into the finish, it was the best move to do because Elisa um, is the stronger climber. If they went into that finish, both of them have having worked, I think Elisa would have been a better, would have had a better shot at winning. But SD Works was sending riders off the front behind them, um, which either would have been an attempt to get one of their climbery riders to bridge or was really shutting down any chase attempt because when you break up the the speed of the group like that, um, it can also shut down the chase. So it was just, I mean, it was just a fantastic race, an absolutely fantastic race to start the, the women's world tour season. 
I always feel like Strata is this great combination of it. It's hard enough that you you know you do get sort of a fair amount of just pure attrition, but it's not so hard that it still ends up almost always being quite tactical. Uh, it's like the sort of perfect little Venn diagram there, right in the middle. Uh, and I think that's what part of what makes it so good, right? Is you've got it's hilly. There's a lot of climbing. That that alone saps the legs. And then you've got this sort of odd surface that requires. Uh, well, a fair amount of handling skill and also just, you know, kind of kind of uh, a little bit extra power uh, in, in key moments. It's just such a fantastic race. Uh, I don't want to get into the, the – there's always every single year discussion of like, is it a monument? We're not, we don't need to talk about that. It's just a really fantastic race every single year. It doesn't need to be a monument to, to make it that. Before we move on, uh, prize money. There was a crowdfunding effort. Yeah, after the uh, the crowd the uh, prize money debacle of Omloop at Newsblad, um, someone started a crowdfunding campaign to raise money for the top five women at Strada Bianchi, and it got twenty seven thousand euros last time I looked, which is just amazing. I mean, I, we could sit here and debate crowdfunding and the good it does in the long term. But all this shows me is that there are many, many, many people out there who are willing to put their money where their mouth is in terms of supporting women's cycling and who care about watching the sport and who care about the women who race. And in general, I mean, yeah, I just think it's it's amazing. So to anybody who's listening who supported that, thank you. And I don't think I need to tell them to continue to support women's racing by watching the races. If the races aren't live, be vocal about it because that's how the sport is going to grow the most in the future is um, through the through the ability to, to watch it live and that will gain sponsors and that will gain money for the long term in terms of paying riders, uh, having races be equal prize money in the future and stuff like that. And we had a really interesting discussion about it on freewheeling. So we, we did dig a little bit deeper into the, the whole prize money debate there if anybody's interested. But yeah, the crowdfunding thing was... Phew, I mean, I'm I'm completely blown away. It meant that the top five women actually made more than the men, which is amazing. Yeah, I, I think that. Well, we don't need to go too far too far into the prize money debate. We touched on it before, uh, but anytime you can have such a, a visible sort of visible proof that there's a fair number of people interested in making these things happen. It helps make these things happen, right? It, it helps push everything forward, uh, even if prize money is only sort of one pillar of the whole picture. It still is yet another piece of evidence that there's an audience, you know, out there looking for good coverage of women's cycling and more investment being put into women's cycling. So, excellent news all around. Twenty-seven thousand euros, amazing. Let's let's move over to Paris-Nice, which kicked off over the weekend. First of the big stage races, usually contested. Uh, well, Paris-Nice and Torino tend to sort of split the top GC riders, uh, kind of down the middle. It's usually like a 
Toronto often uh, has slightly better weather, although not always. Sometimes Toronto's weather is terrible. Both of them can have terrible weather, basically. Uh, Paris-Nice, the race to the sun, obviously starts up by Paris, ends up down in Nice, so it gets warmer and warmer throughout the week, generally. Kicked off with some sprints over the weekend. What have we seen so far, Dane? Yeah, uh, Sam Bennett looking really good is what we saw in stage one. Uh, just continuing to win over some top talent. Uh, he, he won two stages at the UAE Tour, and Paris-Nice has a great sprinter's start list and so he kicked that off with the victory uh he's just i feel like there's been uh uh uncertainty over the last few years over who the top sprinters are there was there's a period where there were very clearly three top guys uh and nowadays it's it's uh, quite a few people who could win a sprint uh but sam bennett sure looks like the fastest one of all right now he, he seems to be on top at the moment and it helps that he races for dakota quickstep they're pretty good at doing sprints so nice showing from him in the early season so far, and I think he has to be happy about it and has to be looking forward to what's next with the bigger races coming up and, and obviously the Tour de France, where, yeah, I feel like he right now looks like the favorite for, for the sprint against anybody. Um, that said, Case Bull took stage two, so I guess anybody can win a sprint at any given time. Uh, Case Bull took stage two ahead of Mads Peterson, who continues to be really, really fast in sprints, which I'm looking forward to for the classics because... I think we're going to get a lot of situations uh, in the classics this year, and you know who knows moving forward where there's going to be Peterson and Watt van Aert and uh, Matthew Vanderpool and maybe Julian Alaphilippe. Who knows? Uh, all of all of whom actually have quite fast finishes and may have to attack each other to avoid uh, having to sprint against each other. So that's that's going to be cool. But anyway, two sprints so far. Uh, in less great news, Richie Port crashed out of the race on day one uh, due to a wayward bottle, which is a bummer. Uh, I think. That we've now learned that there have been no fractures, which is good. Um, so hopefully there's no sort of long-term, uh, you know, issues for for Port. He looked he looked pretty, uh, yeah, banged up, not happy, uh, hurt. But it sounds like he won't have uh, any, any fractures to deal with. So that's good. Shouldn't have yeah, shouldn't have too much impact on the rest of his season, which is good. Uh, Mark Cavendish almost won a bike race. He did. He was over the weekend. He was second in a one-day race, which is, you know, a lot of people want to win one-day races. It's not like a stage race where, like, half the Peloton's worried about the GC. So, good for Mark Cavendish uh, at the Grote Priest Jean-Pierre uh, Montserrat. Montserrat. Yeah, Montserrat. Yeah. yeah, Tim Earlier with a nice win there, by the way. He's done a nice job of proving that the Alpes and Fenix team is not just Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, he's now yeah. won two races in two starts uh, in the last week. Uh, so, nice job from him. But, yeah, Mark Cavendish, I guess. Maybe he's back. Is that what that means? Um, we'll see. <laughs> I, so I, I, did, I, I whipped up a quick story over the weekend when I saw this because yeah, it's you know it's the last time Mark Cavendish won a race was 2018 Dubai Tour. So you got to go back a fair ways at this point. Uh, and he's had you know he had Epstein Barr and just a bad year with Bahrain McLaren, and now he's back with. Quick step back with a team that he had a huge amount of success with back in what 2013, 14, 15 ish. Um, and he seems to be quite happy there. He also, uh, you know, I do think it's worth noting that it's not a particularly lucrative contract. I put this in the story over the weekend. It's, it, he's basically kind of mostly being having his way paid by specialized. Uh, but he just really wanted to race his bike this year, like, really wanted to be a bike racer, continue to be a bike racer. He's 35 years old now. 
and I think that that says something, right? I, I mean, some of these guys they just love they just love racing. I think Cavendish is one of them, and and you know if he can find that desire again, who knows? Maybe he maybe he does win a couple races this year. I don't, you know, we're not going to see him back to the Cavendish of old, I don't think. And the fact that he's on the same team as Sam Bennett means that he's not probably going to get the opportunity to, you know, get get the the last couple uh, Tour de France stage wins he needs to to match the record. But, you know, if he wins a couple even smaller races this year, I think that's a better way for him to cap a career than basically the last two years where he's been largely anonymous. So yesterday, was it yesterday? Two days ago. Uh, whenever Montserrat was, whenever I was watching it. I think it was yesterday. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, Tim Merlier was, was, was always going to win that race. He timed his kick perfectly. He, he started really early. Cavendish got kind of caught up in lead-out men kind of coming backwards through the peloton. But Cav still finished really fast and and passed a bunch of riders in the last 100, 150 meters. He looked quick. And so I think, you know, it's possible that he can win a race again, particularly with a good lead-out. His lead-out was not perfect. Uh, yeah, and it's just good to see, you know, someone who was such a big part of professional cycling for the last decade getting close again. Because I would like to see him go out on a couple, a couple victories versus on a two-year drought. Confidence is all part and parcel of racing, so I think if he, he's going to have that little bit of confidence with him now after getting that second place, he clearly loves racing his bike, so I don't think we've seen the last of him this season at all. I can see him get... if he, he Even if he just keeps getting podiums, that's awesome. I'd like to see that. Yeah, agreed. bit more confidence, and yeah, you never agreed. know when might come along. Looking ahead, we do have Torino starting imminently right Daniel? yeah who's there uh on wednesday the race starts so there'll be two world tour races going on at once as usual this time of year you're going to be able to watch uh primas roglic at perry nice uh and tide pogacar over at Torino adriatico along with a host of other big names including uh matthew vanderpool wild fun art julian alaphilippe will all be there peter sagan will be there uh yeah it's going to be i think most of the big names in the men's peloton are going to be in action across these two races so on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're going to be able to watch a lot of bike racing. If you have time to uh, you know, switch between the two races, you're going to be able to see most of the big names in the sport in action. Uh, yeah, should be good. Should be entertaining. Torino's got a, a tough, a tough uh, route this year. There's a, there's a time trial on the final day, so nice uh, balance for you know, a lot of different riders to have chances over the course of the race, and it'll be cool to see Pogacar in action. Uh, yeah. Speaking of Pogacar, Pogacar update. Yes. Contract extension. He has signed a contract extension, so he already had a pretty decent um, length to his contract that was going to run through 2024, and now he added two years to his contract. So now he will be with the UAE team members through 2026, which for professional cycling is a really long time. Uh, you know, other sports there, that, that may not seem like that big of a deal. Uh, to be on contract for six years. I mean, baseball, you sign contracts for like 12 years sometimes if you're if you're a big star. Uh, cycling contracts over two or three years even is a long time. Six is, that's, that's yeah, that's more than you will almost ever see. And it makes sense because he did just win the Tour de France. Uh, so nice job for, for Tade to get a long-term contract. And I'm sure UAE is happy to have the former, Tour, the, the uh, defending Tour de France winner uh, on their team for the foreseeable future. I hope he's got a good agent because that's a long time. 
And it, it's quite conceivable that his value could actually go up considerably in the next five, six years. Uh, so hopefully that that, that that contract has been structured as such that he will reap the benefits of any you know, additional Tour de France wins that he gets or any other big, yeah, just big results, you know, higher profile, etc. He's going to be, it's, we're going to be a very different place five years from now than we are right now. Uh, and I, yeah, I just hope that, that he's been taken care of on that front. I think this is another uh, really interesting example and, and, a, and just a kind of crazy thought. This is the Lamprey team. I mean, there was a period where they were not doing a lot, to put it lightly. Uh, and where they might cease to exist, it, it seemed. Uh, and then they kind of had this transformation to being uh, a team that was going to be sponsored by the UAE. Okay, sure. Uh, they brought on some names that still didn't do a whole lot for a few years. And now they have the reigning Tour de France champion on a six-year contract. I mean, that that's kind of wild how quickly things turned around for them, or how dramatically, I guess, things turned around for them. Uh, they, they got a pretty good team now. Money helps. Money is... Turns out to uh, acquiring yep. talented bike racers. Yep, yep. I think that was the primary. The primary. They were no longer sponsored by uh, a flooring company. They're now sponsored by a country. That Not just any country. Oil. <laughs> yeah. For whom whatever contract Pogacar is on is a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. So, yeah, not not too surprising that we're seeing a relatively dramatic increase in uh, both spending and, as a result, results from the team. So, I think that wraps up our racing wrap-up. I've just gone around in a circle twice. It's time for Nerd Nuggets! Nerd alert! 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 This week's Nerd Nuggets, we're talking about another potential power meter shoe. James, tell us about it. Uh, First, I want to point out that this is not going to be the first time that we have heard about a, well, it's a a cleat-based power meter, uh, because already we have you know, a variety of pedal-based power meters are out there. This is a, an older PowerTap P1. Um, and then quite famously, uh, several years ago, we had an attempt at a cleat-based power meter from Brim Brothers. Uh, that Brim Brothers, what was it, the, the DPMX, which uh, that company unfortunately folded, folded in 2016. I had a, a pretty interesting interview with one of the co-founders that was featured on Cycling Tips, so you can feel free to look that up. Uh, but now we have what appears to be another attempt at a cleat-based power meter. Uh, this was dug up by our patent lawyer freelancer, Alan Cote. Thank you, Alan. So this one doesn't come from a, a bike company, but rather it comes from a home fitness company. It's called Icon. Uh, and you may or may not have heard of the Icon brand name, but um, Icon Health and Fitness, I should say more specifically. But you've probably heard of you know Proform or Nordic Track or Weeder or Free Motion, Health Rider, a whole bunch of different little sub brands that they have there. My grandpa and- had a Nordic Track. Mm, I think we all had a Nordic track back in the day. Back in, actually, I never had one because, yeah, I was busy studying. Because I, I don't sure. think you used it very much. As anyway. Most, not used very much. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, coming back to this Brim Brothers thing, I mean, one of the reasons why people were so excited about the idea of a cleat-based power meter is because it, it you know, it, it travels with your shoe, basically, instead of, like, even a pedal-based power meter is a lot more convenient than, like, a crank-based one or 
hub or something like that because you can transfer it from bike to bike very easily. However, for a cleat-based power meter, it, 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 if you're wearing your cycling shoes, then you have your power meter with you. And that is the, that's kind of the ultimate in portability, I guess. Um, but the Brim Brothers design that was based on a speed play cleat um, and yeah, they had a really good concept in place and they had really uh, a pretty highly developed prototypes and stuff. But they ran into a bunch of issues, uh, not unlike what you run into or what, what Garmin and you know, before that Metro Gear ran into with their power meter pedal. Um, and you, know, you have all these different axes of movement with your, with your shoe on a pedal. Uh, what Brim Brothers ran into is you have all different kinds of shoes. Like uh, it turns out when you try to build a cleat based power meter into a shoe, you have to account for shoe flex. Like, you know, I have this pair of old bots here and these are just monstrously, monstrously rigid. If you look at like this less expensive physique, however, would kind of like more like a nylon sole, like this sole is a lot more flexible and the, the flex characteristics of this shoe are gonna be very different. So Brim Brothers ran into a problem there. The solution that Icon is coming up with, however, and it's interesting again, from a home fitness perspective is, they appear, They have patented a uh, their own cleat-based power meter, uh, you know, a whole bunch of strain gauge sensors and all that other stuff. But it's requ it looks like it's requiring a dedicated shoe, which that sort of thing probably wouldn't have worked very well for like an enthusiast cyclist uh, for an enthusiast cycling market. But it could actually have legs. No pun intended. Uh, could actually have legs for the home fitness market where. You know, you have companies like Peloton that are selling their own branded shoes for indoor cycling. And if if Icon packaged it something like that, then you know where where there's a lot you know fewer parameters to account for in the algorithm, then that might, it might work. I have a question. What's your question, Kaylee? Could you use these to ride Zwift on your Peloton bike? We don't know. Presumably, yes. Um, well, actually, I don't know, because the thing is, I mean, Zwift requires that you have, you know, some sort of accurate way of determining power, but then it also needs to have a way to ideally adjust the resistance correspondingly uh, in whatever whatever stationary trainer you're using. So, but you can still run Zwift on like rollers. Like I have a friend who runs it on rollers. If true. You really yeah, want and to. I guess I I guess I've done that before too. But I mean, it it's it's not as good. So like maybe you could, um, but. You know, and in theory, if someone wanted to, I mean, given that this is aimed at the home fitness user, and again, this is all based on just on patent paperwork, so we don't have any actual details. Um, Alan also tried to get in touch with the company and wasn't able to get a response, probably because there's some massive multinational home fitness corporation thing. Um, and they were like, what is cycling tips? Yeah. Yes, probably, <laughs> probably. But anyway, um, I mean, if if this is built into the sort of thing where you know, instead of having to build power meter hardware into a stationary bike, and instead this company is going to be offering it as sort of an add-on for at-home stationary bikes, then that kind of makes sense. But then it also potentially opens up the possibility, depending on what sort of what the hardware looks like. I mean, it's not entirely inconceivable. Let's say they marketed this as like a less accurate power meter for home use for like, you know, more like casual users. Let's just say it was something that worked with a regular bike that you could potentially use outside. And maybe it would just be a cheap power meter for people who sort of just are okay with it being less accurate and kind of just want like a, you know, more of a guideline. Hmm. I like that idea. I like the idea of a, I, I mean, I always liked the idea of 
shoe and now pedal based power meters just because you can move them between bikes really really easily but the reason i asked the the peloton bike question is because my brother is a peloton bike lives in downtown boston and you know he, he, he rides it he likes it but i think that the ability for him to then take it you know do some zwifting on it or whatever else i think that that would be it'd be an interesting add-on to the sort of existing ecosystem that peloton has that we've talked about this before on the podcast they've done a much better job of reaching out to the sort of average fitness enthusiast than most sort of more dedicated bike oriented cyclist oriented products right when uh, you mean, say most i think you mean all 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 i mean like even zwift even zwift has really focused its energy on hardcore cyclists right peloton has very much gone in another direction i mean it, I saw there's a woman running in my neighborhood the other day in like full Peloton, uh, like yoga clothes, and I was like, "Well, that's you're not seeing that for Zwift. We'll put it we'll put it that way. You're, you're not seeing that for any sort of pure cycling brand. But there is there's some functionality in those pure cycling brands that I think that could be useful for uh, for the sort of broader audience. And this sounds like a sort of a perfect way to tap into that, right? You've got something that's pr probably pretty easy to use, makes sense to uh, uh, almost any end user. You could use it on an existing like indoor cycling bike that maybe doesn't have power on it already. I kind of like the concept. Yeah, and you know, certainly one of the huge appeals of Peloton in general and why, you know, kind of just why it's done so well is exactly like what you were saying like they've they've made it super easy for the end user there's just not a huge amount of thought involved like you pay a bunch of money and you have your monthly subscription and you just push the button and everything's integrated like the screen is integrated into the unit it's all plugged in together you don't have to like you know take your bike and put it on a trainer and then fire up your computer and then fire up your zwift or sufferfest or whatever account and then pay everything together and like you, like you don't have to do all that crap you just push the damn button um and with something like this if they were able if i kind of able to take that somewhat you know somewhat mysterious concept of power uh and and democratize it essentially to, to just home fitness users then that makes it into this term that a lot of people can suddenly understand and if they were able to make it pretty inexpensive i would argue that there also would be a lesson to be learned by uh, from the cycling industry in that if again if icon actually brings this to market and if they actually are able to pull it off you know one of the things that got me thinking about the whole brim brothers thing again is you know, had Barry Redmond and his co-founder been able to take that concept and, you know, let's just say they had a much bigger pile of money to play with, uh, play with in more time or whatever. And let's say that they were able to take that cleat based power meter concept that they had and integrate it into a dedicated shoe so that they were able to, you know, eliminate some of that major, some of the major algorithm parameters that they had to that contend with kind of late in the, in the development, you know, maybe that would have taken off. I mean, it certainly wasn't, you know, a company of that size. I mean, they were just as startup as could be. It was basically just him at the end with, you know, however many other people he employed or contracted for, uh, or whatever. But, um, you know, at that point, uh, you know, had that thing been built into a shoe, then uh, who knows? We might, we might have been having a very different discussion as far as Brim Brothers is concerned. Yeah, and I think that it's important to keep in mind that the the potential market size that we're talking about in the f general fitness enthusiast, the Peloton enthusiast, that type of that type of fitness person is so much bigger than the market for not just 
cycling, but cyclists who care enough about power to figure out a power meter system on their bike and then pay for it. We're talking about, you know, what, 10, 100 times, 1,000 times bigger number of people. Uh, so it, it is potentially something that could, as you say, democratize power, which I think is an interesting concept because it's it's a cool thing that, that cycling has that most other fitness avenues don't have, right? It's a really trackable figure and that makes it kind of fun. It, it, you know, if you if you like sort of following those numbers, it can make, well, following your, your own power more fun. There is no real equivalent in running. There's no real equivalent in swimming. Uh, it is one of the few sports, one of these sort of fitness avenues, you can put them, where you can get a real number that tells you how much you're improving. And that can be super motivating, which means that you then potentially get more of those sort of fitness enthusiast types onto bikes, which then helps the whole bike industry. So it is sort of, it's almost a potential uh, gateway drug, gateway That's not the right term, <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. It's it's a gateway. It, it's a potential gateway into bikes as a means of fitness because it it you know bikes can provide something that other types of indoor fitness equipment can't, like going outside. That I was more talking about just the the number, but yes, <laughs> that too. Yeah. If um if everybody who who has a Peloton were to be interested in something like this, and then maybe by having already the indoor bike and having a means in which to connect it to Zwift, if all of those people like started riding Zwift, Zwift would be like so massive. That's actually insane to think about. Another thing that is kind of interesting to me, not knowing a ton about, about this is if Peloton would buy this um, kind of product and then I feel like that would kind of shut it down to the rest of the cycling industry. Because I think if if Peloton were to buy the shoe and the um, power meter that connects to it, I don't see hardcore cyclists being being too thrilled about um, investing in something in something like that for their own use. Yeah, probably not. But again, Pel Peloton is interested in a much larger, much larger market. So exactly. Well, true, but I'm just thinking in terms of our world. In our world, yeah, I think Peloton as a brand is not particularly. I, I, everyone, uh, every time I have a friend or or a family member who goes and buys a Peloton, I get a text message about it, and they like are almost apologizing for it. And I'm like, I, I don't care. You go, you go, you go Peloton. It's great. <laughs> and I, I see it. I see Peloton as a means of pulling people into bikes in general. If if it, if you fall in love with your Peloton, maybe the next step is to go get a bike to ride outside. So. I'm all in favor of this power meter shoe, power meter cleat as a potential gateway into cycling in general and power as a motivator, because I think that all of us have experienced that to some extent. You see the number, you want the number to be bigger. That's a, that's a motivating factor. I think that this whole, this whole thing could, could work out well for us. Well, plus again, like the whole idea that potentially if a company were to actually dive back into the cleat based power meter, but develop a dedicated shoe to go with it to get rid of some of those issues that again the, the brim brothers folks had uh, a few years ago then you know that again could bring back this concept of a power meter that's built into a shoe and goes with your feet as opposed to goes with something on your bike so that is something that is potentially uh that potentially has a lot of appeal to except that people are so particular about their shoes they are they are we so are particular 
But we are again. We're talking about a different market here. That's very true. But but very, here, very true. but here's the thing. So imagine if, but imagine if a company that you know, let's say people are yes, pe- cyclists are very particular about their shoes. But let's say a company that already had a very big following for their footwear decided to embark on something like this. Like say Shimano or something or Specialized. Let's say they were like. We're going to do a cleat-based power meter. We're going to build a dedicated shoe around it. You know, a company that has the resources to actually make that happen and that also has a big enough following that knows that their feet fit well in those shoes and would be willing to, to kind of roll the dice on something like that, then that gets a lot more interesting. Power to the people. Hmm. Then again, like this is all kind of this is all <laughs> kind of speculation. And whether or not any of this stuff actually happens, eh, we'll see. I think it'd be sweet. I would like to Zwift with my brother on his Peloton. That's what I would like. So And and throw turtle shells at each other in the process. 100%. I also want Mario Kart Zwift. But that's a, you know, we'll work on Zwift with that. All right. That's, that's enough. That's enough nerd nuggeting for today, I think. I feel like, you know, the nuggets, the nuggets can start extending into, I don't know, what's what's bigger than a nugget? Um, a, tw- a, tw- a 20 pack if Dane was here <laughs> right a 20 we, we, that was a 20 pack of, of nuggets today of nerd nuggets today let's wrap up today's episode uh, as I said at the beginning of the episode make sure you go back and check out our International Women's Day special which went up on US Monday morning if you missed it uh, and if you did miss it I made a little announcement in that particular episode uh, which I will now remake now in case you did miss that episode uh i i'm having a kid in about six weeks five weeks i didn't know you announced this already kaylee i put it in the in the in the international women's day episode yes just went up as we were as we were recording this episode uh so yeah i will be i will be gone for a couple weeks which you know if you're an avid listener to the podcast uh I guess I've been, I've been on basically every episode for about two and a half years now, <laughs> and I will be gone for a while. So, uh, host duties will be kind of passed around, but mostly will be on the shoulders of Abby, uh, who will run the podcast for a couple of weeks while I'm out on paternity leave. So I will be disappearing at some point in early to mid April, for obvious reasons I don't know exactly when, but uh, you'll be in good hands with Abby Mickey over here. <laughs> and I'll be back sometime in May. Though I'm very excited about it. My wife's very excited about it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to not opening my email in Slack for like four weeks in addition to having a new child. <laughs> Can you imagine how many messages I was, and emails you're going to have? I was Whoa. just going to say, that's not going to be pretty. Like, well, no, but what... like 7,000 emails. But, but what Kaylee does is he puts out a an auto-reply when he's on vacation, and I, I would imagine you're going to do the same thing when you're on paternity leave. You're going to say like, hey, thanks for your message. Sorry, I'm on paternity leave. All of these messages will be deleted. I will be back <laughs> on this date. Please email me again then. That is exactly what I will do. Yep. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to contact me, try again later. Basically, uh, you know, well, well, there will be some. There will be some. You know, if you need, if you need help with tech editorial, contact James, for example. Uh, if you need help, if you have, if you'd like to complain about the podcast, here's Abby Mickey's email. Any podcast complaints can go to Shoddy, and he will answer you in his own way. 
that'll work perfectly. So I just wanted to let everybody know out there in the Cycling Tips podcast audience that yes, I will be disappearing for a couple weeks and then I'll be back. So with that, let's wrap up today's episode. We'll be back next week with another weekly show. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.